Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. For obvious reasons, this podcast has spent a lot of time talking about amateurism in rugby and the impact that it had on the game around the world. But we haven't spoken very much about amateurism in soccer. Yet, despite the Football Association legalising professionalism as early as 1885, amateurism played a huge role in soccer for over 100 years. The most famous representatives of the amateur ideal in the round ball game were the Corinthian Football Club. And it's not unusual today to hear of acts of fair play referred to as being in the Corinthian spirit. The writer DJ Taylor even wrote a book about the Corinthian spirit in 2006. So, to discuss the history of the Corinthians and their legacy, my guest today is Professor Dill Porter, the author, along with Chris Bolsman, of a book about the Corinthian club entitled English Gentlemen and World Soccer – Corinthians, Amateurism and the Global Game, which has just been published in paperback by Routledge. Dill is an old colleague of mine from De Montfort University and the author of many essential books and articles on the history of sport over the last 150 years. So there's no one better to talk about the subject. Welcome to the podcast, Dill. Thanks very much, Tony. My first question is the most basic one. What was the Corinthian Football Club? Well, the Corinthian Football Club starts in 1882 and um, it's... When it begins, it's one of many sort of gentlemanly football clubs that spring up to play midweek matches, to go on tour. It's not really all that different for a year or so from any other venture of that kind. There are a number of them around, usually old boys from the same public school or people who have the same university connection and usually based sort of in and around in and around London, City of London especially, because of the, the sort of configuration of, of business interests there. But it really springs to life, I think, in 1884, uh, which is in the middle of the FA's sort of crisis about, about amateurism and professionalism, um, when the uh, founder of the club, who's a kind of journalist of middle-class sports promoter um, with interest in all kinds of activities from football to tennis and athletics, uh, a guy called, well, uh, N.L. Nicholas Lane Parr Jackson. He's usually just called Parr Jackson. And uh, he, 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 sends, he's, he sort of really um, sends the club out on tour in the north of England just before just before Christmas 84. But the way I see it, it's it's doing two things. It's sort of flying the banner for the old sort of university, public school, old boy type of amateurism. And it's also, I think, uh, something of uh, a sort of charm offensive, really, by the powers that be at the FA to ensure that the, the relations with the, the burgeoning sort of professional game in the in the north are are, are maintained and, and sort of strengthened in some way because there's great danger at that time that, that the whole thing's going to fall apart so that's what that that's what they they do and they become a, they become a sort of uber amateur club really and uh, with rather sort of exaggerated notions of gentility gentility um i mean they're very socially exclusive they've all been to university talks with the cambridge or to or or at the very least to public schools and um they they i suppose part of what we call the corinthian brand really which develops over the years is that they they perform in a rather sort of cavalier fashion i mean they play play with great dash and, uh, and and they make a great point of that. They look very good. They look very smart. Um, they're a kind of, they're, you know, they, they play like dashing 
gentlemen amateurs, but in fact they're actually rather better organised than they they would like you to like like you to think. And they tour then uh, in England uh, Christmas and Easter usually. They go to Scotland as well. Eventually they like playing Queen's Park because they see them as a very similar club in Scotland. And eventually, of course, they actually begin to from 1897 they start to tour overseas as well. And so they carry two things. I mean, they regard themselves as a kind of missionary club, really. And they say, when they, especially in relation to their overseas touring later on, they say that, they, um, that, they're, that they're doing two things, really. They're spreading, they're spreading these, the word of association football, as it were, the gospel of association football. And they claim to be sort of pioneers in that respect, but I, I don't think that's, that, that's quite true. Um, also, they, they, um, what they tend to do is to be pioneers in terms of spreading a certain kind of amateurism. They're interested in, a certain, in, in playing the game in a certain way and showing that it can be a sort of respectable game for middle class people to play. So they're kind of they're ambassadors, missionaries. And I suppose the other important thing to say about them by way of introduction really is that they're incredibly well placed in the media. <laughs> And they sort of write their own history as they go along. So there's a lot of myths and convenient stories, if you like, that have arisen around the Corinthians, which, you know, may or may not be true, but which um, are part of the Corinthian sort of legend that sort of supports the idea of the brand and keeps keeps public interest in them alive till they finally fold as a separate club in um, 1939 when they joined with the casuals, um, formed Corinthian casuals who are still going and playing um, in about the seventh or eighth tier of uh, English football at the moment. Well, it, it's interesting you talk about the brand because the, the most obvious thing about the brand is the name because clearly that's not related to anything in Britain. I mean, they don't they don't play in Corinth, <laughs> um, which, which is an island in the Aegean. Uh, where did they get the name from? What's the meaning of the name? Well, there's a, the name, I think, is meant to, meant to denote... Some kind of exclusivity. Um, obviously, you know, these, there was a fashion for these kind of classical names in sport, wasn't there? I mean, in the late 19th, early 20th century, think about all those amateur football leagues around London, like the Isthmian League and the Athenian League, and the, well, there was a Corinthian League later on. I mean, they, yeah, they're all named after after Greek islands, rather mysteriously, rather than being called, you know, the Southeast League Division One or whatever it might be. So. There is that sort of fashion that develops, and I think it, part of that is denoting a kind of exclusivity. I mean, the word Corinthian, if you look at the word Corinthian, in uh, look at usages of the word Corinthian before the Corinthian Football Club came along, it's usually used in relation in, as a sporting connection most frequently in, in relation to yachting. Uh, there's a lot of yacht clubs called Corinthian that predate the Corinthian Football Club, which is, you know, another kind of link to a kind of pretty exclusive sport. I mean, the mythology angle is quite interesting because, I mean, nobody quite knows the answer to your question, but there are a lot of ways that things that suggest it's meant to denote exclusivity. The mythology angle is interesting, I think, because in Greek, in Greek history anyway, ancient Greek history, Corinth was a place that was meant to be very desirable, but also it was a difficult society to kind of break into. So you know you were they, they link this up to um, they link this up to their their own sort of membership rules. They they have a limited membership and you're invited to join, and they have what they call, well they call it um, 
actually do call it an unwritten law of the club. It's not in the rules of the club, but basically you have to have been to a public school or university. So, you know, it's, it's all about sort of exclusivity, really, um, in, that, in that sense, social exclusivity. And, of course, they were meant. I mean, Jackson, certainly by 1884, has got this idea that they're going to represent the cream of the old sort of amateur game. So they're sort of also exclusive in that they are sort of selective for their their ability as well. They're meant to be the kind of people who can basically demonstrate at the very least that the, the gentleman amateur can compete with the new professional, if not beat him. And so that that, that sort of, you know, that, that, that notion lies behind it. And also I think isn't there a notion, they, they, if you look at, sort of old boxing literature and things a lot of that they talk about corinthians being just basically um it's a kind of compliment to somebody's kind of pluck and get up and go you know some a sportsman that's sort of you know bold and brave and dashing and i think that sort of angle fits as well these are all sort of brand what what in the marketing literature they call brand associations that support the brand the brand image yeah and jackson himself is who's the creator of that brand he's quite interesting in that he kind of comes from what kind of a lower middle middle class background, uh, but is but but is a kind of entre- sporting entrepreneur. I mean, he publishes Pastime magazine, but also he has this kind of. I think what's one of the things that's very interesting about him is that he's actually one of the people who proposes that the FA legalised professionalism in eighteen eighty five. And then very rapidly becomes an absolutely zealous opponent of any form of professionalism whatsoever and, and takes a very active role in the campaign against professionalism in rugby. Yeah, well, I think I think Jackson a, makes a political decision in 1885. I think he's probably persuaded, he's very closely connected with um, Alcock, who was the um, secretary of the FA. Jackson was the assistant secretary of the FA. And... Um, he was also the secretary of the London Football Association, which he really regarded as his sort of fief a little later on. Well, that started, I think, in 1983 or thereabouts. But he's, he's kind of, um, as you say, well, he's the kind of man that comes from nowhere. He's not, he's not very aristocratic or even upper middle class. He's kind of, um, he's got this mysterious past which he keeps changing, basically, as a matter of convenience. He's, I get the impression... I mean, I've seen various accounts, he's, you know, that his parent, his father was a, a horse dealer, um, a pub owner, um, a cheesemonger, uh, all kinds of things. He claims to have roots in Devon, sort of to be quite gentrified, but nobody's ever really substantiated that. Um, he's one of the, but he's a very able journalist. I mean, journalists, uh, journalism's kind of um, a sort of profession that's growing in the late 19th century but it's a profession that is not it's a sort of quasi-profession really which anyone can gain entry to so it's got these pretensions to be you know to the gentlemen of the press have pretensions and and uh, Jackson's very much part of this movement and he, he he that's where I think he makes his initial impact on sport and he's quite active sportsman himself in athletic circles in London in the 1870s 
Um, and he's, he seems to be a sort of died in the wall pro, you know, pro amateur kind of person. Uh, because it's his way of, of, of making himself a gentleman, really, I think. Um, and he's very much the sort I always think of him as the sort of guy that always wanted to go first class but didn't quite, quite have the fare. Yeah. So he kind of piggybacked. Yeah. He piggybacked onto other, onto other people. And he was a great service to them, uh, both because of the sports papers that he, um, he started – and as a sort of developer of other of, of other sports, I mean, and, and sports related products, you might say, or or, um, or projects. So yeah, it's very interesting. And the Corinthians is just one of a number of the the ways in which he promotes amateurism. Because although, as you say, I th- and I think Alcock was was much more pragmatic figure, and I think Alcock persuaded him in 1885 that the way things were going, unless they actually licensed professionalism in some way, then the FA would would probably split. I mean, there had been already that that sort of breakaway British Football Association meeting or two that was held up in uh, in Manchester, hadn't there, by that point. And he and I think he persuades Alcock that now's the time to kind of trim, really. Uh, sorry, he persuades Jackson now's the time to, to go along with uh, and make some kind of compromise deal. But then, you know, that's... P- but within that, and Jackson soon is able to revert to type because within that deal, you know, um, it becomes very important to somebody like Jackson to defend the amateur within the football association because he sees himself fighting a sort of rearguard action thereafter against the growing professional interest or the interest of the professional clubs at the FA. Um, and, you know, he's very unhappy about a lot of the developments that that brings with it. Yeah, and he plays. A, I mean, he, he plays quite a significant public role anyway in the run up to the split in rugby in eighteen ninety five because his um, weekly magazine pastime is one of the main organisers of the opposition to the Northern Club's proposal for broken time. So, and he's very much seen as uh, in the north, very much seen as part of the the enemy camp for the Northern Clubs that want to legalise broken time. And the obvious other parallel is that. Although I've never seen any reference to this, there's, uh, it would appear that the Corinthians are the model for the barbarians, which have formed in the 1890s as a, a like the Corinthians, but for rugby, as the the ultimate team of am- touring amateurs who play uh, go on tour at Easter and other holidays and play against the best of the what were then quasi-professional northern teams. Yes, well, I mean, I think it's in Jackson's kind of. Um interest or the Corinthian sort of interest in the North of England is quite is quite interesting really it says a lot about the club I mean in some ways the first match they play on their big tour in 1884 is probably the most important match in their history because they go up and play Blackburn who have just Blackburn Rovers who are the FA Cup holders and therefore according to one local newspaper you know the champions of the world right so they go up there and they and they and they beat them 8-1 in December 1884 uh, now, I mean, it's you know, it's a sensational result, uh, which you know, sort of shakes up the football world. But what they don't mention is that, that later in the week they lose seven nil to Bolton Wanderers. Nobody ever remembers that game because nobody ever talks about it. <laughs> um, they're playing a match a day. The conditions in December are often pretty awful. I mean, pitches in those days were pretty dire. It's hard, very hard to judge exactly what's going on. Um, there's a guy called Hargreaves, I think, plays in that Blackburn team. I might. Might be slightly misremembering here, but there's certainly Hargreaves is certainly connected with both Blackburn and the Corinthians because he's at the original meeting that sets the club up. Um, there's lots of so Blackburn are not 
quite the you know people tend to read back into this they think oh Blackburn Rovers they were a big professional club in 1884 well you know they weren't really quite there yet you know they were um, payments were being made as we know in the north of England to play, to working class players but you know you it's not like they're taking on Manchester United and beating them 8-1 or something like that they're actually playing a team probably not that different from themselves in some respects so they make huge amount of this every account of the Corinthians that you ever read always mentions this match you do get some sort of some kind of well, it's it's quite interesting because people in the northwest particularly do become, and that's where they go mainly, of course, because that was the soccer sort of hotbed. But they do tend to get a little bit cheesed off at times, I think, with um, the Corinthians by the certainly by the sort of end of the eighties, beginning of the nineties, because you find in the football field, which is a kind of one of the one of the first sort of papers that really. Public, you, you probably know it, bond paper. Um, they're, they're saying round about 1887, 1888, oh, yeah, and the Corinthians have been, um, isn't it odd that it costs more to play against the Corinthians than it does to play against a team of professionals? Because they're demanding a guarantee to turn out against a side and then, you know, to cover their expenses. But these, the expenses they're covering, or at least the, the guarantees they're demanding for these matches are actually some people consider to be excessive quite early on so there's a kind of whispering campaign and then of course it's take you mentioned the rugby context that becomes very important to the corinthians there's a really interesting episode in 1890 i think it's the end of 1893 beginning of 1894 anyway when arthur hornby who is the uh lancashire because famous lancashire cricketer but also the captain of the lancashire county rugby Side and he he his uh, he makes a speech at the annual dinner or something or AGM of the Lancashire Rugby Football Union, and uh, he says, "Well, Jackson and the Corinthians, they're the kind." He implies they're the kind of people that are letting the side down, really, because how can we deny the um, the uh, working man so a broken time payment when we know there are clubs swanning around who are demanding huge guarantees, living off the fat of the land, as it were, and um, and don't produce proper accounts, basically, is what he's saying. Well, the Corinthians are absolutely outraged, of course, by this, but not so outraged that they'd actually sue him <laughs> for dragging their name through the mud. Uh, what Jackson does is very interesting. He has, by this time, set up the Sportsman's Club in London. And what better than to set up a committee of people who belong to the Sportsman's Club to investigate these charges against the Corinthians um, and find there's nothing in them? <laughs> <laughs> so so it just kind of yeah they never actually they never actually really answer the charge at all nobody ever knows what well i think hornby's phrase is you know they 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 come on tour they demand huge guarantees to pay their expenses and nobody nobody hears about the rest he says and the rest is the kind of question thing that's always in what does what do they do with the surplus i think myself that they just have a good time basically they do they do push some of it in the direction of as it were you know what they consider to be worthy charities they play quite a they quite quite a few matches sort of benefit matches for professionals sometimes that involve the corinthians benefit matches for other causes local charities and whatever um some some uh, school football ventures etc they set up the the corinthian shield for london schools football and things like that but basically um there is a kind of grey area that, you know, is impenetrable there. And I think it's probably they just have a pretty good time, really. 
if you're a working class amateur, your expenses basically cover your, you know, at best your broken time, don't they? But if you're if you're um, a gentleman amateur, you're going to stay at a better hotel anyway. So your expenses are always going to be rather more, <laughs> and you're going to you're going to eat different kinds of meals and so forth. This is one of the reasons why the the northern club, the top northern clubs, had basically stopped playing the top London clubs in the early eighteen nineties because of the amount of guarantees that they demanded, so they could stay in the best hotels. And of course, they drank wine instead of beer, uh, which is always a big bone of contention. But the the other the other thing I wanted to get onto was that. One of the most famous things, and he mentioned the game against Blackburn Rovers in 1884, which the Corinthians hold up as being an evidence of how the amateurs uh, are actually much better than the professionals. And the other famous game, which I think anybody who's read about the Corinthians or this period in football history, is uh, the 1904 match when they beat Berry, who were then the FA Cup holders, 10-3. And again, this is used as an example of just really on... When it came down to amateurs played a better style of football and were better footballers than than the professionals, um, but the book suggests it's not as quite as straightforward as that. They played Bury in, in um, nineteen four. Bury have won the cup six nil by being Derby six nil, which I think is still the well, it was wasn't it the record until a few years ago and when City Man City equal equaled it, I think, um, and. Um, Although my memory tells me that one of the Derby players was was crippled from the outset, so it's a bit of a kind of freak result. But anyway, Barry were—they were kind of a middle-ranking uh, Division One side, I think, at the time. They weren't the—they weren't the best, um, and I think they got—they got caught cold really um, on the day. But of course, it was the other—it it meant that they could then—it sort of gave them an opportunity to sort of revive this Corinthian, this image of the Corinthians as some kind of super club. Um, and again, that match and the Blackburn match are the ones that, are, as I say, are always mentioned by the Corinthians when they re, re, retell their history. Um, I don't know quite how you, but, you know, how do you explain a particular result? Um, a Berry, I've, I've looked at the Berry team. It seems to be much the same team as they put out you know, the week before in the, for a league match, um, quite what their attitude was to the match, I don't know. It's played midweek in December, isn't it? It's played an odd time of year. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I just don't know quite what's going on there. And 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 actually, you know, if you look at um, the Corinthians' performance again in that sh- charity shield, because they carry on playing those matches through till 197 when they leave the FA and so they're not, they, they can't play them anymore when they join the Amateur Football Association instead for a time till that, that problem's resolved. So it breaks the pattern. But I mean, they're, they're, they're getting, they get, yeah, the, some of their performances are dis, uh, considered to be a bit embarrassing um, after 194, you know, and certainly when they go back into the charity shield later on in the 1930s as an attempt to revive that sort of tradition and they play Arsenal in the 1930s twice, I think, for the charity shield. I mean, they, you know, there is, a, I mean, by that stage, there is absolutely no way that the Corinthians are going to make a decent fist of taking Arsenal on, who are obviously were then, you know, the leading club. So, as you said, one of the, it's, if you can control your own narrative, which Jackson obviously wanted, then that is actually the secret to 
from a business point of view, building your brand, but also from a from a from a history point of view, actually projecting an image of the club that lasts an awful long time. Because, as I said at the top of the show, the the Corinthian spirit is still something that people talk about. Certainly, you can still hear commentators talking about it. They're a great example of how. Um, amateurism isn't all that it appears to be as it's presented, I think. Well, it's quite interesting, I think, because, um, I mean, in a sense, amateurism is part of the brand. The idea that they're gentlemen amateurs is part of the attraction of the Corinthian brand. People, people Some people like to identify with that. Uh, people like Geoffrey Green in The Times is very, very important, of course, in making associates the time, well, for years and years, I think, at that time, he would never have been referred to by name. He would simply have been our association football correspondent. But, I mean, Green is, is, um, is uh, a very important football writer, I think, in that respect. I mean, he's, he's worthy of a, a really good biography, I think. And he's, what he does is, um, you know, he just rehashes as the preview to the game the sort of standard Corinthians history, Blackburn Rovers, Berry eight three. They add on. He can add on to it a lot of matches uh, played in the nineteen twenties and thirties because when they they entered the FA Cup for the first time after nineteen twenty two, and there were a couple of kind of heroic sort of you know underdog kind of cup stories to be added to the added to the legend. Um, and people like like Green are very important. Of course, he did play for the club in the nineteen thirties when he came down from Cambridge. I mean, they weren't at their best then, but he was he was very much part of the Corinthian tradition. It keeps going. And as you say, that you know, they've got there's all these, I mean, amongst the other myths, there are all these, well, you know, they make a great sort of exaggerated display of gentlemanly behind, sportsmanship, really, uh, at times. You know, that they would, they were very good sports. Um, they would, well, I mean, the key thing is about the penalty, isn't it, which sums up really the whole of the Corinthians' history. I mean, the penalty kick was introduced in 1891. And the point about the penalty kick was that it was basically um, designed to discourage or, or to penalise what we call the professional foul these days, the, to de- the denial of a goal-scoring opportunity. Well, the Corinthians were outraged because they were gentlemen and they assumed their opponents were gentlemen because that was part of being a gentleman, that you assumed your opponents were the best of your opponents and they would not could not possibly conceive that any person that they were playing against would stoop so low as to deny deliberately deny anyone a goal scoring opportunity by committing a foul so they were most affronted by this idea and this sort of myth grew up that you know if they were if they were awarded a penalty they deliberately missed it uh, as a result, or they, you know, they, they, they just dribbled it to the goalkeeper or something. It's a bit difficult sometimes from the kind of a short match report. I've not, I've not found, I mean, I've gone right through Rob Cavallini's history of the club, which is basically a compilation of match reports, and you, you don't really come across that being mentioned at all in match reports, except when they go to South Africa, which is in 19... I think they go in 1907. They go, well, they go in 1897, 91. No, 1897, 1902. And then I think 92 or 93. And then they go in 97. Sorry, my memory's going, Tony. Anyway, when they go in 97, it's just at the time when uh, they're 
they they go when the crisis is is going on really in England, which results in the old boys and university based clubs breaking away from the football association to form the amateur football association. And they've, I mean, one of the, re- Jackson's always, he's got lots of beefs with the FA. One of them is, is very much the penalty, you know, doesn't think it's a very good, why should, why should amateur footballers be subjected to something, some kind of uh, change of the rules simply to, because professionals won't behave themselves is the, is the idea, you know. They can't. They, they, they. This is an indication the FA is going to going going to the dogs. So when they go to South Africa in 1907, they make a big fetish of this, and they get awarded a penalty one of the early matches of the tour, and they they make a point of missing it. And I, this happens two or three times in the early matches. So what happens is the South African FA, who are members of the Football Association, as it were, associate members, they complain. Well, you're taking the piss out of our referees, basically. <laughs> you're going to do this we're not having this you're, you're undermining the referee's authority so please stop <laughs> and in the end they do stop they don't do it again that sort of generates a kind of moral high ground somehow i mean if you look in the official history of the fa published in 1960 which was um, ed- edited by two corinthians jeffrey green and arthur fabian the uh, account of the Corinthians there, which is by a very sympathetic kind of um, uh, follower of amateur football, Norman Ackland, who was the kind of um, senior amateur football correspondent for a number of kind of uh, London newspapers in the 20s and 30s, and very much a sort of Corinthian sympathiser. I mean, and Ackland has this little passage there where he sort of, he he quotes um, Reeford Brown, who I think was on the 1970 tour, um, in defence of this kind of sportsmanlike behaviour of missing penalties in South Africa and saying this is a great ideal to which we all could aspire, and that's in 1960. <laughs> so it goes on and on. I mean, the other thing they don't like, of course, and Jackson in particular doesn't like, is that um, they are officially, I suppose, what the FA in the 19th century, and they probably in rugby they'd have called them this as well, they were officially a kind of scratch team. And they weren't a club, they were a kind of group of players that were got together. And um, Jackson liked to send um, scratch teams out quite often. Sometimes they were just called NL Jackson's 11. You find them, they often went to public schools and played in the week, things like this. And to or to play at Oxford or Cambridge, um, and he said. And there were other times. I mean, there's one occasion I've found out where I think it's again it's testing the market for professional football in London. Really, um, he does some kind of deal with the owners of the Crystal Palace grounds, which obviously could be a huge white elephant. Really, and always desperately looking for ways of filling it. And he plays – well, there's a team called Crystal Palace that play against Sheffield Wednesday, certainly, and some other challenge matches towards the end of the 1890s. And if you look at those clubs, those matches and who plays in them, there's quite a lot of Corinthians turning out for this. It's not, nothing to do with the club we now call Crystal Palace, but um, is they are playing for this Crystal Palace team. So I, I, my sense is that's possibly another Jackson venture, you know. Um, and he and the FA get very anxious about these matches because they sort of ha- they don't want scratch teams going out. There's kind of questions raised about expenses and and whatever, which of course you know um, Jackson denies and says yeah. But these are sort of unregulated, so they 
they they demand that they should they should approve these kind of freelance activities, and that's another reason that Jackson is cheesed off. He wants to basically run things, run his own operation, quite separate from the. He doesn't want the FA interfering at all, and he gets very unhappy about it. They create their own myth, and that's what allows, in a sense, that's what's allowed this idea of what Corinthianism is to survive for so long. If you can control your own narrative then in a sense you're the master of the fu- master of your future yeah and of course it does it i mean if you think about the barbarians and the way they operated i mean we 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 passed over that rather but it's quite interesting that i mean i think they are they probably do see the corinthians as a bit of a model in 18 1890 isn't it they, they start something like that i mean and they they and of course they do settle in uh, and they are all oxbridge aren't they um the original barbarians it's an oxbridge operation yeah i think, the, I think the first yeah, yeah. they took 21 players on the first tour and they were all oxford or cambridge um and um, of course some people played for both fry played for both the corinthians and the barbarians which is the ultimate kind of gentlemanly sort of accolade really isn't it might as well have thrown in the end well fry did it didn't he the mcc as well so <laughs> you've got the lot but um, the point is, I suppose, that um, the, the barbarians, they settle into those, those patterns of tours. It's like an invented tradition, isn't it, very quickly? Um, the barbarians touring at Christmas and Easter, you know, it becomes part of the rugby union calendar. And, um, and it's just it, that's very much what, you know, the Corinthians do. I mean, the Corinthians do that. There's, a, there's the invented tradition of their tour and the, their northern tour. Yeah, I mean, but as far as the barbarians are concerned, I'm sure they are. They see them quite self-consciously as a model. And um, it is quite, and it's one that, of course, is, is easily, is much more easily sustained in a way in, in, at a high level in rugby union uh, because there's no official sort of league programme to be completed. I mean, you know, by once the football leagues in there and ex, uh, after eighteen eighty eight and expanded, there's less less available space to play matches against nobody. You know, if you've got a big match against I don't know Daston Villa or against Birmingham at Easter or something, you're not going to want to play the Corinthians, especially on on Easter Tuesday. Especially if you've got another match on Easter Monday. You know, um, the tour does provide that kind of model for the Barbarians, and of course they play the, the they're very close. They play uh, eighteen ninety two. They have a sort of sports day. Barbarians v Corinthians at Christmas. It might be the Oval, I think. Yeah, it's to raise money for charity. It's a kind of um, can't remember who actually initiates it. Oh, the Corinthians in eighteen ninety two. This is actually from um, well, a book which really praises Corinthians to the to the to the skies, written in the nineteen fifties by a guy called Grayson. But he says in eighteen ninety two, Corinthians threw down a challenge and offered to meet any other club at football, cricket, and athletic sports proceeds for charity. Is accepted by the Barbarians. The Barbarians won by four wickets. Corinthians romped home at Association Football 6-1. And then, surprisingly, oh, they romped home. They squeezed the victory in athletics by one point. Then, surprise to everyone, they beat the Barbarians at their own game, 14 points to 12. <laughs> C.B. Fry, who played in that game for the Corinthians, said it was because their back division was um, much quicker because they were all the kind of forward line of the football team, the soccer team. And um, he said, the rugby world, this is Fry, the rugby world was inclined to regard the whole thing as a freak and a lark. I can assure you it was a proper and first-rate rugger match. Probably, I think, the best club historian of the Corinthians is a guy called Norman Creek, who who wrote a, a club history in the 30s. 
Yeah, it's certainly a lot more measured than uh, Jackson would have been, for example, or, or some of the their other admirers. He says the barbarians lost as much by courteously not claiming penalties for breaches of the rules, <laughs> especially in the early part of the game. So, you know, it was obviously a very odd affair. I think probably there's, that's a sort of conscious connection there, isn't there? And also the barbarians shared the same, the same attitude towards money because... After all, amateurism can't survive if there is no money. It's one of the great paradoxes of amateurism. The more money you have, the easier it is to be an amateur. On which note, I'm going to have to draw it to a close because we've run massively over, as usual. Um, So I'm going to say thanks very much, Dil. This has been absolutely fantastic, really fascinating. Just to remind listeners, uh, Dil's book is called English Gentlemen and Well Soccer, Corinthians, Amateurism and the Global Game. And it's by Dil Porter and Chris Bolzman. And it's published by Routledge. I hope listeners have enjoyed this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast. As I'm sure you know by now, my Twitter handle is at Collins Tony, and my website is www.rugbyreloaded.com, where you can find the complete archive of episodes about the history of rugby and the other football codes, as we've discussed today, along with the show notes and links for this episode. So, until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>